think most everyone here is familiar with the idea of a scapegoat. We, we talk about scapegoats today, and I think kind of usually what we mean by something is like someone getting unjustly or unnecessarily blamed for either someone else's crime or sin or, or like one person being blamed for the whole, you know, a big problem that goes beyond them. Like something like a, a company that's made a huge blunder that's obviously like a corporate blunder. Like everyone in the company seems to be a part of this problem. And then they decide to fire some random mid-level executive because, you know, they need to show that they're reforming the company. And like, look, we fired Johnny here. The problem's fixed. We can move forward. So, you know, because the, you know, the shareholders need blood or something like that. So that, that, that's like a, and we see that as like a scapegoat. And, and that doesn't usually solve the problem. Like that didn't do anything to solve the problem. It's just like put the blame on him and send him out of here. And so that's, that's kind of how we see it today. But that's quite a bit different than the word is originally, what it, what it means originally. The word scapegoat has a pretty deep and, and profound history. And I think, I'm going to explain it because I think it's helpful to understand our readings today. Because our readings today we're very familiar with because we actually see them often in Lent. You know, the suffering servant and the book of Hebrews. But as 21st century Americans, we're very individualistic and, and we, we have a tough time understanding the idea of sacrifice, I think. Uh, really understanding it. And so... On the Day of Atonement, uh, what the Jewish people called Yom Kippur, it's the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. And one of the many things that they would do on that day was they would take two goats, and, and as similar as possible in appearance, you know, size and stature. And, and one of them they would sacrifice on the altar, which is pretty standard procedure in ancient Israel to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Um, but usually, before sacrificing that animal, you would... Can, you know, you confess your sins over the animal and then you would offer it up to the Lord as a sacrifice. But on Yom Kippur, they wouldn't do that over the goat that they sacrificed on the altar. They would take this other goat and the high priest would confess all the sins of all of Israel for that entire year over that goat. And they just out loud confess all the sins of the whole people of Israel. And then they would tie a red thread around the goat's horn and they would clip off half the thread. And then they would send the goat out into the wilderness. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't just let it go, you know, because then the goat would probably, any smart goat would just wander back in. And then somebody would open their door and all the sins of Israel would be on their doorstep. You know, so you don't want that to happen. Uh, so they'd send someone out there with the goat. And eventually they'd get it up to a cliff and they'd throw it over the side of the cliff. And so why, why would they do that? Well, it's, it's this great symbolic act, and actually a very real act in ancient Israel, of taking all the sins of the people and letting the wilderness just swallow them up. You know, like, like taking this goat and putting our sins upon it and letting the wilderness kind of swallow up our sins. And if the scarlet thread, the half of the scarlet thread that the high priest held turned white, that meant the Lord had accepted the sacrifice. And there's, they recorded in history, you know, almost every year that, that happened. You know, it happened consecutively for a long period of time that the, that the red thread would turn white. Uh, and so why, why do I bring this up? It's a really weird ritual. It's like, it's totally unique in ancient Israel. Uh, it's the only day you do something like that. 
I think it's helpful in understanding the idea of sacrifice, what it actually means. You know, so let's look to our first reading. In Isaiah 53, it says, Father is pleased to crush him in infirmity, the suffering servant. If he gives his life as an offering for sin, he shall see his descendants a long life, and the will of the Lord shall be accomplished through him. You know, somehow, the suffering servant, this mysterious character in Isaiah, what he does affects us in a concrete way, in a real way. I think we understand this passage vaguely because we hear it every year around Lent. You know, and it's often paired with, with the agony in the garden, the crucifixion. And so we always associate it with the crucifixion in our mind. But I don't know if we fully understand what's going on, like the principle of sacrifice that's operating here. So look back at the scapegoat. What, what they're saying in when the high priest lays his hand upon the goat and confesses all the sins of Israel, what, what, what they're saying in that moment is, what's going to happen to this goat ought to happen to me because of what I've done. You know, like, what this terrible fate that's going to befall this animal ought, needs to be my fate in justice. It should be what I, it's what I deserve. But, thank the Lord, he forgives me uh, from this sacrifice. You know, this exchange allows me to keep living. And so the Lord forgives the people every year and says through Isaiah, you know, very literally, Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they shall be white as wool. So that thread would turn white and they would know they were forgiven. So every year the Israelites would send a goat into the wilderness on Yom Kippur with their sins, and for a moment they would be freed of the burden of their sin, you know, freed of that, that inevitable moment when we do the thing we don't want to do, you know, or that moment when we don't do the thing that we want to do, you know, as St. Paul says, you know, we're just a people who are always doing the things we don't want to do. Um, so, so we're people who fall, and the Israelites, they would be freed from that for a moment, and then yet again, as broken people, they would fall. And then they would just have to await Yom Kippur the following year. It's like, well, here's another year. Uh, do this again next year. But more urgently, what they were awaiting was the Messiah, the one who was going to come and somehow fix this. Like, the Messiah was going to come and figure this all out so we wouldn't be stuck in this perpetual cycle of, like, Offering sacrifice to the Lord, he forgives us, we fall again. We offer sacrifice, he forgives us, we fall again. Every single time, it's like this, it's a vicious circle. And so they awaited the Messiah. You know, in Malachi it says he's the one who will arise, the son of justice, with his healing rays, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of their children to their fathers. You know, I think, and so knowing this, let's turn to our, our second reading, which is, from the book of Hebrews, which is kind of the beautiful explanation of sacrifice as Christians. You know, it's the Christian theology of sacrifice. And, and here it says that, that, in a sense, we're fulfilling all the hopes of Israel in Christ. It tells us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has similarly been tested in every way, yet without sin, so confidently approached the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace for timely help. You know, Jesus is the new high priest. He's the high priest and he is the victim. 
So he takes the sins of Israel upon himself, actually the sins of the whole world upon himself, and dies. And this sacrifice is actually a fitting one. You know, because it's, it's, this exchange is more than adequate. You know, it's one thing to take all the sins of Israel and put them upon a goat and send it out into the wilderness. That's, that's an exchange that the Lord accepts. But, but when the Son of God takes the sins of the world upon himself, it's a totally different thing. You know, when we, when we think of history, we think of it as a line. You know, generally, Westerners do. Uh, we think of like, we look back in history, you know, down the line, and we look forward into the future. So we think of it kind of as a linear line. Whenever you see timelines in history books, they're always just a line. And the cross, in some great and mysterious way, is a single point on that line. You know, it, it happened. It happened. But at the same time, it's like a mountain that rises out of history. You know, the cross sits above the line of history. And so it's, it's able to extend in both directions through time. You know, forward into the future and backward into, the his, into history. And some, so somehow the cross of Christ, when he died, the forgiveness of sins extends in every direction. It's not just stuck in a moment in time like, like what we do. You know, when you do something, it happens and then it's in the past. When God does something, it's not stuck in time the way that we are stuck in time. So the sacrifice of the cross is one sacrifice that is for all of eternity. Uh, and that's a mystery. You know, that's, I see some confusion out there. But it's, it's a beautiful mystery uh, and one that we could contemplate forever. So Jesus takes everything upon himself, not just of the people of his time, but all of our sins, all of our hatred, all of our venom. You know, like... Everything that we have done is swallowed up in Christ's death. The same way that that goat takes the sins of Israel out into the wilderness and swallows it up. So, thinking about that, we take a look at the gospel. And, and Jesus' own words explaining this. Uh, you know, James and John come up to him and say, you know, basically, Jesus, we want to be your generals when you bring the kingdom of God about. Like, when you go and conquer Rome, we want to be at your right and your left. That's why they got the nicknames the Sons of Thunder. And, uh, and Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You know, can you drink the cup that I drink? Because basically, what is Jesus' glory? It's the cross. And so James and John are effectively asking in that moment to be crucified with him. And he says, you don't know what you're asking, because that's not what they're looking for. Uh, and so this is sacrificial language that Jesus gives us. And he makes it even more clear, clear as the conversation continues. You know, the Son of God did not come to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is our ransom. You know, when we talk about that perpetual cycle of sin and sacrifice, we're stuck. You know, we're captives of that. You know, John says anyone who sins is a slave of sin. And so in a sense, we're enslaved. But Christ has come to pay our ransom and free, him, free us from that in a very real way. And that's the, that's the great twist in the history of humanity. That's our great surprise, was when Jesus came and did that for us. Because we, we've always known that that sacrifice somehow brings us back into relationship with God. Making a sacrifice always brings us closer to Him. And, and it's, always, it's a mysterious thing, but it, it's across time and cultures that we believe that. Uh, and, and, and God's always promised to honor that sacrifice. You know, in the, in the ancient world, it was, you know, through Malachi, he says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Shall I not open to you the floodgates of heaven? 
and pour down blessing upon you without measure. When we put ourselves in a place of vulnerability before God, when we make a sacrifice, He always honors that a hundredfold. When we trust in God, He acts. Uh, and in the sacrifice of Christ, He acts definitively. You know, for once and for all, that sacrifice extends into eternity. And so, how do we respond to this great act of love from God? I think the only way to respond as a Christian is with deep gratitude. That's our only disposition as Christians, is a disposition of gratitude. Because we've been given an incredible gift, one we can't really imagine. Uh, and, and I think the most fitting way to respond in this life is in the Mass. Because what we see here is, in a, in a great and mysterious way, it's actually the representation of the cross. We are at the foot of the cross when we are at Mass. Like we're taken up out of time in the same way that the cross is outside of time. And that is hard to see because you are distracted, I understand, and tired, but man, that's where we are. We're, we're at the foot of the cross. And it's, that's the only place where we're restored to our former dignity. You know, when we're raised up to be sons and daughters of God. And so, at the, so at the beginning of every Mass, we ask forgiveness. You know, today we sang it in the penitential act. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Other times we say it in the confidior, you know. I confess to Almighty God and you, my brothers and sisters. And when we do that, we kind of present ourselves in a vulnerable way before the Lord. And He always honors that. So, when you enter into this Mass, look at Christ upon the cross. And, and name him as your scapegoat. Put your sins at the foot of the cross and leave them there. You know, and ask God for his forgiveness. And pray for this great disposition of gratitude for such an incredible gift of forgiveness. Amen.